0: You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 8th of June, 2018, on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Mom? I don't like this. Dad, I don't like this. What's
1: happening? Peter? Me. I am your mother, Raysha. <laughs> Mom, what's happening?
0: Why are horror films having a renaissance? My guests, Augustine Machalari, Melkin Charchoglian and Thomas Lewis, will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Donald Trump's upcoming international outreach marathon from the G7 in Quebec to Kim Jong-un in Singapore, and Midori House's rigorously thorough and brilliantly well-informed World Cup preview. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to the show. My guests today are Monocles, Augustin Machilari, and Milken Charchoglian. We're also joined live from the G7 Summit in Canada by our Toronto Bureau Chief, Thomas Lewis. Welcome all. And US President Donald Trump has left Washington, D.C., be nice to finish that sentence there wouldn't it but for what promises to be an eventful few days of international summitry on tuesday he's due to meet north korean leader and sworn enemy of the united states kim jong-un in singapore although as things stand that may come as a relief after meeting with america's theoretical allies at the g7 summit in quebec in recent weeks trump has irritated and or alienated all present by launching a series of baffling trade wars withdrawing from a hard-won nuclear agreement with iran and off as he embarked by suggesting that Russia should be readmitted to what used to be called the G8 but at the rate he's going may end up being called the G6 Um, Thomas first of all what kind of welcome can Trump either anticipate or has he enjoyed I'm not sure where he presently is
1: well he is currently sitting down to lunch Andrew at the Manoir Richelieu hotel in the Charlevoix region of Quebec Um, I wonder how jolly and friendly that lunch will turn out to be. He was on rather uh, robust, belligerent form this morning when he gave a quick impromptu uh, word or two to the press, as you alluded to there, calling on uh, the G7 to to let Russia back in. Russia was, of course, excluded from the group in 2014 when it annexed uh, Crimea from Ukraine. I think the list of grievances and things that the other G7 world leaders will want to challenge him on is pretty long and pretty uh, exhaustive. And I think perhaps that might have something to do with the fact that we now hear that President Trump will be leaving Charlevoix earlier than anticipated on Saturday morning now instead of later in the day on Saturday. He will be going straight from here in Quebec to Singapore to prepare for that summit. Uh, on Tuesday between the the North Korean government and his.
0: Just to follow that up, Thomas, in Canada itself, is the political uh, atmosphere such that Justin Trudeau is going to need to feel obliged to give Donald Trump a bit of a slapping? Possible. I um, mean obviously I- not literally that would be insane
1: <laughs> That would be a story for you there, Andrew, yes but I think there is some political pressure on Justin Trudeau to be robust and to be very firm very publicly against particularly these tariffs that have been um, slapped on Canada's um, aluminium and steel industries. Um, I think however that you know it does follow a bit of a pattern that the Canadian government have been forming particularly in the context of the NAFTA renegotiation process over the past few months. I think the US has been caught by surprise just how robustly the Canadian side of this renegotiation is standing firm to the things that it wants. I think there may well have been an assumption that the US could renegotiate this and everyone else would dance to their tune. That hasn't been the case. Um, I think, you know, when you look at Prime Minister Trudeau's standing in the opinion polls here domestically, you know, things aren't particularly rosy for him. And if you look just last week, his government announced a pretty controversial plan to buy quite a controversial pipeline project in Western Canada, which many are describing here as perhaps one of the most decisive moves of his premiership. And that was quickly followed by these tariffs from the US, and that has definitely dominated. The Canadian agenda in an international sense at least so far I think you know Justin Trudeau has conducted him fairly well the the strength that he's showing towards the US has been noted I think you know within the public consciousness uh, but also he is doing so in a pretty diplomatic characteristically sort of gentle way I think it's fair to say so you know we'll see how all this plays out in the long run there is an election here in Canada next year uh, but I think this is a very crucial moment for him both in his standing international nationally and domestically
0: too. Uh, Malkin, what do we make of, of Donald Trump's uh, suggestion that Russia be readmitted to the G8, or as it then was, despite the fact that Russia has not, of course, undone any of the things it did to get itself thrown out in the first place?
2: Well, exactly. Hasn't undone any of them. So it's shooting himself in the face, making that suggestion. The first thing he does is he says we get Russia back in just as he's being investigated for collusion with Russia. I'm not sure what the man is thinking. I mean, he is well known to go off script. I'm sure every single person in his cabinet would have said do not mention Russia. And that's the first thing he does
0: um Augustine, is it is it your sense that the other nations in the G seven, the G six, uh, as they now effectively are, 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 they getting to their point. Is there going to become a point at which other Western leaders start thinking, look, there's really only a couple more years of this nonsense. We can kind of tune him out and just get on with it, and then hope he's replaced by somebody uh, slightly less like Trump.
3: I mean, yeah, but they'll be looking to polls in the states as well, won't they? Like, what are the chances of Trump's re-election in 20- 2020, I feel like at this stage, it's no safe bet to write him off entirely and just think this guy is out there and we're going to toddle along for the next two years without really paying him much attention. Um, I'm interested by the pressure, domestic pressure that these various leaders are under um, to stand up to him. You know, uh, Thomas was talking about Trudeau actually looking quite good, kind of, st- sort of sternly but fairly telling him where to park it. Uh, Macron also, I think, is fairly popular in France for his robust relationship with Trump, which is one that's not afraid to be kind of cowed by him. Shinzo Abe, by contrast, is there looking weaker and weaker as he makes more and more concessions to the man and to the states uh, and gets nothing back in return. Theresa May literally apologized on his behalf today (laughs) after being snubbed and told that she wasn't going to be having a meeting with him. Uh, she said, no, no, it's not a snub. She, she, she sort of brushed over it. Um, and I think that's kind of a really interesting measure for the strength of these people's characters. Whether or not they're going to eventually just tune him out, as you ask, I think depends on, on how likely it is that he'll be re-elected.
0: Uh, Thomas, just to come back to you quite quickly on this one, what are you expecting from the rest of Today. today.
1: Well, we have this lunch that's going on at the moment, Andrew, as I mentioned earlier. We will have the the family photo, uh, much anticipated family photo, I think it's fair to say, coming up in about an hour's time, I believe. And then there'll be various working sessions throughout the day. Uh, tomorrow is when Prime Minister Trudeau will give his sort of closing press conference on what's actually been discussed and achieved uh, during the past two days in Charlevoix. Um, I think that will really give us a sense of just how fraught um, a meeting this was between the, the G6 nations and Donald Trump himself. He will, of course, be in the air on his way to Singapore by then. But I think we will get a sense then quite clearly on whether any kind of resolution to, for example, the US tariffs or to even the the standoffs over Iran and even the Paris Climate Accords too, if any of those issues have been edged closer to some kind of accord with the US or whether the Gulf is still as wide as it feels right now.
0: Okay. well, let's look ahead now to the second part of Donald Trump's Winning Friends and Influencing People world tour, barring a last-minute flounce by one of the parties, which is not a prospect that can be altogether ruled out. This time next week, the first handshake will have taken place between a North Korean leader and a sitting U.S. president. The isolated demagogue, with a fondness for self-glorifying militaristic spectacle and a thin-skinned intolerance for the mildest deviation from patriotic orthodoxy, will meet Kim Jong-un in Singapore on Tuesday. Um, Melkin, have we lost sight of whether this should even be happening? This is, I mean, OK, he is who he is, but he is nevertheless technically the leader of the free world, and he is making nice with the person who is, lest we forget, the leader of probably the worst regime in the world
2: yes and just last month he called him a very honorable man you know just several months after calling him a deluded rocket man to paraphrase um i'm not sure which is worse to be honest exactly i mean he's changed his stance completely um there's a very good article recently in New Yorker comparing Trump to the late Kaiser Wilhelm II and the kind of deluded, <laughs> stance-changing attitude they have. It's on, it's off, it's on, it's off. Um, I think it's only really worrying, and this summit is completely clouded over the, uh, the G7 summit agenda. Uh, no one's actually discussing what's on the table, and he's leaving ahead of time, skipping over you know discussions on climate change to go meet uh, Kim and kind of present himself as this fantastic um, peacemaker.
0: Uh, Augustine, is there a concern here that Trump is getting played, uh, that this is a a no-lose situation for North Korea and a no-win situation for the United States? Uh, This is a very interesting question, isn't it? They could do any
3: number of things, from simply not turn up to turn up and make unreasonable demands, and Trump will end up with lots of egg on his face. Whether or not he's going to end up with that Either way, I'm sure he'll be able to spin his way out of it or just to bluster on regardless. I think it's difficult to say whether or not he's getting played because I do think that America has um, a pa- the power to make life a lot easier for uh, Kim and for his citizens, although I'm sure he's not as concerned about them. So there must be an element of uh, genuine mm, desire for things to work out on the part of the, of the regime. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, there'd, there'd be, you know... There would have been a lot of trouble to go to just to pull a prank.
0: I mean, Thomas, this 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 is my own pet theory, which I'm just introducing into the convers- into the comp- under the conversation. Uh, no, Thomas is not there, I believe. <laughs> okay, no, we have lost Thomas, and therefore I will introduce it to the table back here. Um, which is just that. Um, the truth is basically that both of these men just want a photo of each shaking hands with the other for domestic political purposes, don't they? Yes. Which they can then spin as an enormous triumph.
2: Well, there's a huge amount of detail that's gone into the planning this. We don't know very much about it. Uh, The the US is primarily organising it. Uh, It's in Singapore. It's neutral territory. It's the furthest that Kim Jong-un will have travelled since taking taking up his position in 2011. So he will be a bit on edge to be outside his country. Um, We'll see what happens. Apparently the North Koreans are asking the Americans to foot part of the bill. What's really
3: interesting about it as well is that in North Korea itself, it's being framed very much as a victory for the North Koreans. I was reading earlier on the BBC that apparently they're making out in North Korean media that the whole idea of it was, you know, a a desire on the part of the West to meet with Kim. So he's kind of painting himself in a good light. What I do wonder about is the need for Kim to score any real uh, PR victories, given that his citizenship completely isolated from the outside yeah, world. He's a total autocrat, and they're not really entitled to an opinion. He's got re-education camps to send them to if they start dissenting. So why he needs them on side is a bit beyond me, other than for his own personal vanity.
0: I mean, Is there anything that would be an actual result here and i don't just mean for kim jong-un's hopes of legitimizing himself by saying look i got the u.s president to fly halfway around the to-, to talk to me and donald trump to have a photo he can wave at the nobel prize committee
2: well i mean the only thing i could imagine happening as a kind of first step of you know a, a warming relations is i guess lifting certain sanctions but that would be far too soon one meeting in singapore and then suddenly, you know, they, they decide to, to strengthen their relationship. I think it will be a vanity project, just to kind of, as two animals would size each other up across the table. I think it'll be a pretty showy, vain event. I am wary of being
3: too cynical, although I have to admit, um, much to my embarrassment, the last time I was on here, I announced with great smugness that I was sure that the whole thing was never going to go ahead anyway.
1: (laughs) Well,
0: it's on, it's off, it's on, it's off. I still think that's probably worth having a few bob on.
3: Right, quite. I'm going to have a a horse in each can, but I will say, for the sake of argument, you know, is communication ever a bad thing? Is it uh, bad to introduce dialogue with this regime? No, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, Kim's going to be old, he might not be there. And to maintain isolation never seems to work to anyone's best advantage.
0: Um, Well, okay, the the opposite question, I guess, because it's always a worthwhile question, though I suspect it's one Donald Trump rarely asks himself, which is, what could possibly
2: (laughs) go wrong? (laughs) What could possibly go wrong? Well, what could go wrong, according to several sources from within the Japanese Foreign Ministry, or other, you know, former diplomats, uh, they know from first-hand experience that North Koreans like to go off script at the last second. You tell them this is going to happen, and then they completely do the other thing just to throw you off off the ball. Apparently, um... Kim Jong-il liked to keep his guests waiting until the very last second. You didn't know when the meeting was going to take place or where, uh, just to get that upper hand. So the worry at the moment is that the US will orchestrate this enormous meeting, looking after every single detail, who sits where, how long you, you know, how many steps you take, etc. And then the North Koreans decide that they're going to, you know, um, throw some rouge on the Americans' faces and uh, and do the completely other thing. I mean,
0: you're quite right. North Korea does have a lot of form for that kind of thing, but so, of course, does Donald Trump. And, and it is, is it not augustine just that petty uh you know carpet sellers theatrics really i mean we've all done that thing where you sort of you're trying to buy something and you do the theatrical flounce out of the shop and they chase you into the street and it's all this it's not really terrifically dignified is it
3: yeah and it's also a kind of infinite loop in my head i have this really beautiful image you know the kind of meme of donald trump shaking hands with various world leaders i have this really lovely idea of both of them going to shake each other's hand and then having the same idea to like whisk (laughs) it away at the last moment
1: <laughs> pull it up to their nose
3: exactly, so they'll just be stood there thumbing their noses at one another and everyone will just you know, there'll be a simultaneous slap all around the world as heads hit hands.
0: The, the trouble is that the world we live in of course is that is far from being actually unimaginable
2: Well, exactly, the, the, we're discussing this in terms of two actual political leaders meeting each other, but really it's, it's two incredibly ill-educated men uh, who t- happen to be representing two countries going
3: head to head I think Kim went to a very expensive Swiss boarding school, didn't he? <laughs> How dare you
0: call
2: him an <laughs> That does not an intellectual um, producer.
0: Well, indeed, as, as as Donald Trump's own expensive education uh, would appear to demonstrate. Anyway, a great deal to look forward to, clearly. Um, you are listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Miller, Augustin Machilari, and Melkin char Choglian. We will take a short break now, but coming up next, a preview of the World Cup, assuming the world lasts that long, and a consideration of the present golden age of horror films. The Monocle Quality of Life
2: Conference returns, and this year we're touching down in Zurich. Join Monocle's editors and a lineup of tax sharp panellists for lively debate, informed conversation, and top-notch hospitality. Whether you're an architect, city-maker, retailer, media mogul or chef, pick up a ticket and be part of the debate on upping quality of life across the board. Why not join us from the 28th to the 30th of June, Find out more and book your ticket now at conference.monocle.com.
0: You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Augustin Machalari and Melkin Chartoglian, and I'm also joined now by Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Now, opening around the world at various points this week is, it says here, one of 2018's most anticipated films. Hereditary, directed by Ari Aster and starring Tony Collette, has been well received. But all those reviews have noted that this is not a whimsical evening's light entertainment for the faint of heart and weak of stomach. Which is to say that Hereditary is, after a fashion, a horror film, and apparently a manifestation of something of a current golden age of the genre, according to those who like that kind of thing. Um, Fernando, we were discussing earlier, before we went on air, that you are one of those people who likes that kind of thing. Um, so, to hereditary first, why are people going nuts about it?
4: Well, I think it is, first of all, the excellent acting, you know, Tony Collat, you know, is playing the main character, Ellen. And and the thing is, that this, new, this new kind of wave of horror films, it's not only like a serial killer killing people or a big monster or something it's something quite personal intimate for example in this film it's a family discovering that they have uh, you know a a sinister fate uh, up among them so it's all all happening in the house in the family it's not an outsider and I think you've seen this in films like Get Out which talks a little bit about racism as well kind of liberal racism and I think that's why these new films are doing so well Uh, you know it does talk about current issues as well in a way.
0: Uh, I mean, are there any other horror films in general fans rather here at the table? I confess, I am not. I am. There's there's some grim
2: expressions and nodding of heads. I have in a here. reservation. I like horror films that have a more kind of psychological thriller aspect to them. Right. Um, Sh- Shutter Island, I think, is quite a good one. It treads the category between treads between the two categories very well. Uh, it's scary, it has suspense, but it also has a fairly intelligent aspect to it.
4: I like both. I like the psychological, but I do like. Like a trashy one, like Fred really? Krueger, and uh, like a Nightmare on Elm Street. one. Of oh no,
2: but they're classics. They, yeah, they're they classics. Real <laughs> Even
4: that, that genre, torture porn. I know there's a lot of people that don't like it, but no. actually, I kind of like it in a very horrible way. <laughs> so you're on there, You can't say that. <laughs> <Yeah>. Oops. Sorry.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Snuff films.
3: You know all of exactly. it. Exactly. Sure,
0: I, I, I don't get it. I, I don't. I don't like gore, and I don't like fear. I don't understand why they're why they're fun.
2: I do agree with you. I think it splits into two camps. Some people just literally want to be scared beyond their wits by someone slicing someone else up, and then others want something like Hereditary, slow-cooked, has a kind of different psychological depth to it.
3: I went to see a film recently called Ghost Stories, which I'd really recommend. Mm. It's based on a play, and it's a kind of lo-fi British film made by Warp Films, so it's a bit more esoteric than its title might sort of suggest and one thing that I noticed was because there were some really good like scary bits most of them were classic kind of jump scares but what I noticed was that after every moment of tension in the screen that I was in there would be a laugh all the way around you know it became this weird kind of quite enjoyable communal experience where everyone in there was really pretty scared at the same time and then as soon as the tension either like expressed itself or dissipated there was this kind of sort of murmur of relief and i think that moment is probably for many people the like precise moment where uh pleasure in horror films lies
0: Uh, fernando we have established that you are one of the kind of people who enjoys this sort of thing and in terms of this alleged renaissance that is occurring in horror films is this a result of at any level the genre having to adapt to the fact that we now live in a world where if, if you actually want to watch horrible stuff, you can do that all day for more or less free of charging. You can watch actual, real-life horrible stuff that would have been
4: unimaginable and unavailable, say 20 or 30 years ago. The problem with the things you see online, it, it doesn't have a good script, you know, and, <laughs> and, I, and, I think, and I think that's the secret. So, for example, Jordan Peele, I mean, his first film Get Out had an excellent script. I mean, I, I completely blanked out, but uh, probably I think you got the Oscar at least was nominated for best uh, screenplay so I think there's a very interesting uh, by coincidence a selection of, of interesting authors you know who are moving from drama and comedy to, 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 to horror and let us remem- let me rem- remind you those films are cheap to make they're very profitable and I think Hollywood's kind of almost count on horror as uh, you know no matter if a lot of films are flopping horror never flops you know it always has a space uh, in the box office because it's the kind of film that you want to be at the Cinema uh, to watch, you know. As, as Augustine was saying, you know, there's a lot of reactions from the audience. It's nice to be in the cinema uh, to. Yeah, fit, it's like a shared care. experience. Yes, exactly.
0: Right. If I, I'm going to ask each of you briefly to name your favourite or one favourite horror film. Uh, I'll go round the table, starting with you, Malcolm.
2: There's a film in 2008 called The Martyrs, and this was <sighs> on the tail end of the um, of the new French extremism wave. And the new French extremism wave is literally about how can we create the most scarring psychological drama possible some some of them were quite light others were uh, were terrifying I, my heart is actually racing just talking about this film it, <laughs> it it's it's got some strange philosophical and religious aspects to it it's one of it's the a most french grou- film <laughs> 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 it it's incredibly gruesome and it just leaves you sitting there thinking how am i possibly going to get on with my life now that i've seen this
4: (laughs) okay that's that's me sold um fernando well i go with a classic the exorcist i saw it when i was nine and that (laughs) explains a (laughs) lot i I, I was i I, I was a bit of a prodigy when it comes to uh, horror films and I've, i've repeatedly saw five six times actually I saw even a, a rubbish play here in London a few months ago. I shouldn't say that, but yeah, you well, it's know. not good. Oh, that's it's a shame. It's not so good. Uh, Augustine. So I'm gonna go for three. Uh, Suspiria, which is this
3: amazing, really baroque film with an incredible soundtrack by the prog band Goblin. Um, I recommend it if you haven't seen sounds,
0: it. Sounds awful at it, several levels. <laughs> it's really good.
3: Um, that kind of ticks the camp box. Babadook, which is for me mm. a really like nice. Uh, exploration of quite a complicated relationship between a single mother and her son and then the third one is is a uh, paranormal activity which made me so f- afraid that
4: i literally screamed i screamed lying on my sofa out loud yeah can i mention critters as well from 86 of course it's critters. my trashy favorite so okay some what? creatures from space eating people
0: Finally, tonight, (laughs) uh, he said with considerable relief. This time next week, the 2018 World Cup will already be three games old. Morocco versus Iran will just have finished and we'll be looking forward to the tournament's first proper blockbuster, Portugal versus Spain, and the following morning's crushing of France by Australia. But leaving aside the Socceroos' inexorable saunter to victory in the final on July 15th in Moscow, what else are we most looking forward to? I'm I'm a a sort of fair-weather soccer fan as we call it in the old country but i do massively enjoy world cups because it's just great global drama um it's it's fun to have that thing that the whole world is is kind of tuned into and i'm, I'm quietly i'm quietly optimistic about australia's prospects without actually <laughs> being able to name a single one of our players uh, i don't think uh, but what what are we almost looking forward to i will start with you augustine i've got one thing written down
3: um here and it's uh, hooligans I really can't <laughs> wait to see what <laughs> what they pull out of the bag this time. On, I, I, on see, absolute the th- hooks.
0: If, if if I was if I was Johnny English hooligan, I think I'd be sitting this one out. <laughs> <Isn't> I, <it? laughs> I, I I I think if they go into that usual thing of throwing cafe tables at yeah. police officers, it's not going gonna it, it's going to go badly. But right. it's not the
2: British fans. That no, are, no, it's it's the Russian fans who have actively been training and inspired Again, by 80s hooligans. They don't, don't even that's drink.
0: The, that's the <laughs> other reason. That's the other reason. I think Johnny old school English hooligan should probably stay home.
4: I think you're right.
3: Yeah, I think. It's it's going to be fascinating seeing how that unfolds, whether there's going to be a repeat of uh, Marseille when they kind of sort of stormed into a town square wearing GoPros and did this really quite amazing Call of Duty style (laughs) attack on the British fans, which was really bad. Um, And I think it's going to be interesting seeing what the absence of that kind of hooliganism says about the state's relationship to kind of almost paramilitary style violence.
0: Uh, Fernando, are you looking forward to Brazil not getting filled in by Germany in
4: ignominious circumstances again? We need to win. I think it's it's a question of pride, <laughs> of national pride. Honestly, you know, and and I very and you know what I like about the World Cup as well, Andrea, as you know, I love a good summary. Track a bit cheesy as well, and, and during this season, Portugal released their new song called Pula Pula. It's just you know a lot of electro beats and just saying jump, jump. So, I like that vibe. You know, I like that you can have a, an excuse to have a drink almost every single day, <laughs> and it's an excuse to wear your national kit as well. I bought the Brazilian one, the official one, of course. Well, so, a um, lot of things to be interested in. Uh, uh, will
0: you be wearing it to work?
4: Potentially, I did in 2014. Yes, I, you am did. I might do true. it again. I might do it again.
2: Um, Malcolm, what are you looking forward to? The cultural shock of uh, away fans suddenly finding themselves in cities such as Kazan and Yekaterinburg, <laughs> just being like, uh, "What? We have to. We have to take a seven-hour train to Yekaterinburg. Why are there so many multicolored domes? And oh my God, there's an enormous mosque next to it. And just kind of people figuring out that there is something beyond Moscow."
0: Um, Moscow in itself is something of a culture shock if you don't know it and haven't been there, though.
2: Oh, my God, it's the biggest thing in the world. (laughs) Flying over an evening is literally like flying over an enormous ants' nest. It just goes on and on. But I think the organisation has been, like, you know, surgical on this. So fans will get there and expect some chaos, but... I think like the metro is going to be running like there's no tomorrow and they've sort of managed to sort out the trains, at least
4: within the immediate oblast. I agree with Mel about one thing. You know, the media loves to say the bad things before the World Cup starts. But I remember in Brazil, people were expecting chaos, the end of the world. But I was there perfectly fine you know i mean besides the 7-1 we we, uh, we,
0: <laughs> we have about 60 seconds left which gives the three of you 20 seconds each to uh rate your team's chances of thwarting australia from its manifest destiny and winning this thing um augustine
3: uh, for the purposes of the world cup normally i identify uh with my italian passport i believe it's very hasn't. sensible
0: even... It's out. It's out. It's yeah, out. So, so you, you're, you're forced to support England? I'm forced to sit this one out. I'm, I, when's <laughs> Wimbledon starting again? <laughs> uh, Fernando.
4: We're beating France in the final 3-1 for us, Brazil. <laughs> okay, you heard it here first. And Malcolm? Since Crimea, I have to
2: support uh, England and Armenia's not in it. So England it is. And I think, I think pretty good. 20%. There you go, I'm giving England 20% chance. Really? that's, yeah. that's, that's Well, that's no, it. that's... How,
0: a... <laughs> how far do you think England are actually going to get? Do you think they're going to get beyond the traditional implosion to some country you've never heard of in the first knockout, knockout round?
2: I think quarterfinals and then embarrassing defeat in the quarterfinals. That's good enough. Embarrassing defeat or penalty shootout? Oh, embarrassing defeat. Okay. Yeah, no, first but, half, 3-0, that sort of thing.
0: That'll be a change. Issue, yeah. <laughs> well, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Augustin Machalari, Melkin Charchoglian, and Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Lumichi Akamoto. Our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. Music next at 1900, The Menu with Marcus Hippie. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns on Monday at 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Mullop. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend.